Hello and welcome to the second episode of the Living with Feeling podcast from the Centre for the History of Emotions. My name's Jules Evans, I'm a research fellow at the Centre. And in this episode, we are looking at the politics of well-being and what can governments do to uh, improve the happiness and well-being of, uh, of, of individuals and, and, and of communities. Uh, what can companies do? What can universities do? Is it appropriate for uh, for governments or universities or companies to try and, uh, and make us happier? Is that, you know, should our emotions and our inner lives really be our own terrain? Is it over-interventionist for uh, governments or, or, or companies to, to, to get involved and meddle in that area? Um, and I'm talking to uh, it's two interviews in this podcast. Uh, the first is with the figure that has done most to drive this agenda forward, someone called uh, Lord Richard Layard, who's an economist at the LSE. Uh, and under the um, Blair and Brown governments, he was known as the happiness czar um, because he was uh, pushing this agenda forward uh, and, and, and getting a lot of influence in the government. So Layard uh, has, has had you know, remarkable policy successes over the last decade. He helped uh, persuade the, um, actually David Cameron's government to start measuring national well-being and using that data to guide public policy. Um, he also argued that uh, governments were doing far too little to, uh, to, to treat depression and anxiety. Um, and uh, starting from 2007, he persuaded this government to put a lot more money into making talking therapies um, more available in the NHS through a program which he helped design called Improving Access for Psychological Therapies, or IAPT. At the moment, um, over half a million people are treated through IAPT every year. It's going to be expanded to 1.5 million people by 2020. Uh, and something like 6,000 new therapists have been trained. It's going to be 10,000 uh, in the next four years. Um, and most, uh, uh, most of them have been trained in a type of therapy called cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT. You'll hear that um, quite a lot uh, through the podcast. Um, CBT, I, I, I'm fascinated by um, this field, partly because CBT helped me a lot when I was uh, in my 20s. Um, and Layard's also looked at, you know, whether schools should do more to teach children how to um, take care of their emotions, to try and teach them uh, the skills of well-being. And we'll talk about a trial he's in the middle of um, to, to develop a new curriculum for that. Um, and we also discuss a grassroots movement he's helped to launch called Action for Happiness. It's really a kind of adult education movement uh, where people can go to events or uh, take courses uh, to learn how to how to be happier in, in effect, and we discuss whether those kind of courses have a place in universities uh, and then the second interview is with will uh, davies william davies who 's senior lecturer at goldsmiths and the author of a book the happiness industry how government and big build, uh, big business sold us well being and as you can tell from the title, will is more uh, skeptical of this new politics of well-being, which he thinks can sometimes be mechanistic or be used by those in power as a way to shift responsibility for misery onto individuals or used by companies as a means of surveillance and exploitation. So I talked to Richard Layard for about 15 minutes uh, and then the last half hour of the podcast is, is, is my discussion with Will. 
And if you if you'd like to find out more about the center, uh, do also check out our blog. You just Google the History of Emotions blog, and you'll find that out as well. So uh, we begin with the interview with uh, Richard Layard, um, and we use uh, three acronyms quite a lot uh, in these uh, in these two interviews. Um, one is IAPT, which is uh, Improving Access for Psychological Therapies. This is this new service that expanded talking therapies in the NHS. Uh, another is CBT, which is Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, this type of um, evidence-based talking therapy, um, which has, um, you know, which the government's put a lot of money into. Uh, and the third acronym that uh, Richard uses is uh, NICE, which stands for the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence. Um, they're a body which basically evaluates different treatments that the NHS could put money into, and it evaluates the evidence for these treatments to try and decide where the NHS should put its money. And it was really um, NICE's backing for CBT uh, and, and, and support for the evidence for CBT that helped to persuade the government um, to, to put a, you know, hundreds of millions of pounds into making it more available. Um, so I began ask, uh, by asking Richard, um, what can um, other academics learn from him in terms of how to go about influencing public policy? Well, I think the, there's two simple things. I mean, one is you, you absolutely must be willing to talk to politicians <laughs> and you mustn't look down on politicians uh, and you can't really expect to get anywhere unless you're willing to have one-on-one meetings with lots of people. And I think the other thing is you, you should get into the habit of, of writing short, succinct papers um, in readable English. Um, actually tell people what you think they should should do. I mean, you, you and uh, David Clark, the, the um, CBT expert, who you, together you, you built the plan for this uh, expansion of talking therapies. Um, it, it, it wasn't a big tent approach to changing policy, was it? In a way, it was the two of you came up with a plan and then drove it forward and made it happen. Um. Yes, there's, there's some, some truth in that, but not a lot, because um, unfortunately we, we, we got this uh, as a government commitment to do something about psychological therapy in the Labour Party manifesto for 2005, so then a process was set up in the department, and there was a very small steering group which included David Clark and myself and uh, two or three civil servants. But they immediately set up expert reference groups. So there was a group on the training of more therapists. There was a group on uh, the measurement of outcomes. And that covered, of course, the range of therapies to be produced, to be provided. Mm. But they, uh, that was simply based entirely, uh, uh, the range of therapies, uh, was based entirely upon NICE. We, we, we didn't have a great discussion. Yeah, uh, yeah. Ab- about that um, but there were 30 or 40 people who came to these working parties and contributed really importantly I mean NICE was very 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 important but I think the, what was was wonderful the people from the whole range came including from the psychodynamic range came to these meetings um, and it was always agreed that there should be the range of therapies that was recommended by NICE which included brief psychodynamic therapy. So that, that has always actually been uh, a part of the objective. Do you feel um, it's, um, it deserves to be more celebrated 
um, this 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 you know ma- huge expansion of talking therapies. It, 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 when it's covered in in the press, it, it often is is from non cognitive behavioral therapy therapists um, criticizing the service and mm-hmm. saying it's just one size fits all and it's just a CBT monopoly. Um, did that surprise you? That kind of um, critique of of the service from from other therapists? Well, I think there was bound to be some, but um, I think it, it it should be celebrated. It is celebrated. Um, I mean, there was a, a wonderful article in Nature that described this as world-beating, and I think that now there are about 10 countries in the world who are thinking of following suit. Um, because, as you say, the fact that we managed to have uh, one a national curriculum, everybody trained, um, with a proper range uh, of therapies uh, to, to a national standard. We had essentially a system of, of um, approving services but based on whether they had adequate staff to provide supervision and so on. We had uh, universal outcome measurement so that we could see whether the patients are getting better. Uh, and we've now got to a position of treating over half a million people a year. Um, within a, a, a um, seven or eight year period um, from when we started. Um, I think this has really made quite an impact. So yeah. I think that the, ge- the general picture worldwide is uh, appreciation and to some extent envy. So another area you've been very active is um, looking at um, how to um, teach well-being and character and resilience and uh, these kinds of emotional skills in schools. Uh, and I understand you've been working particularly on, a, on a, something called the Healthy Minds Curriculum. Um, could you tell us a bit about that? Yes. We obviously want um, to, to enable our children to understand themselves, to be able to manage their own emotions, to understand what's going on for other people, um, and to be able to develop good relationships with them. Uh, we want them to develop the right attitude to sex and eating, good idea of what kind of uh, responsibilities and skills they will need if they become parents. Um, we need them to have a sensible reaction to the media so that they don't become slaves of fashion and so on. All these things we now can develop in an evidence-based way. So what we did was, we said, look, there's a, a, an hour a week uh, allocated to PSHE in most secondary schools. PSHE, personal, personal social, social health education. Health education, yeah. Um, l- let us, in, instead of having that um, used on a rather ad hoc way um, by whatever uh, teacher um, could be be found uh, to teach it, and some are very good, but some are doing it because of it. there's a gap in the timetable. Yeah. Um, let us take this very seriously as an opportunity to um, produce a healthier generation uh, of children, a mentally healthier generation of children. So you've been trying um, to design a curriculum? But by drawing on things for which there is an evidence that they are likely to succeed. So uh, one of my colleagues spent a whole year going through about two or three hundred programs, mostly shortish, modular programs, you know, to say 20 hours each, on one or as- other aspect of the things that I just mentioned. And we, we, we found the best 
that was addressing each of these problems uh, and put them together to form a complete curriculum, which lasts for four years, an hour a week. And we're now in the middle of trialling it with uh, 26 schools um, and proper scientific uh, random assignment and so on. I'm very excited about this. I I, I have great hopes that this could become um, very, very widespread uh, through our school system. There's always been a stage when something new has come into schools. Yeah. You know, people started teaching science. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Started teaching economics, and we should start teaching children how to live. What about the place of this kind of um, well-being education in uh, in universities? The time I was most um, miserable was when mm-hmm. I was an undergraduate. Uh, and 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 there was there was you know this was in in two thousand or so and there was very little, no, nothing I really studied was 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 much help in that area, um, and uh, which seemed to me a pity and a kind of missed opportunity. And I, I'm not really talking about just student counselling services. I'm talking about having um, introductory courses where where students can go to consider what matters in life, how to take care of their minds, these kind of things. Why, why is that so lacking in British universities? Well, I think people are scared about talking about these things. Um, and um, I suppose it, people are not, not sure who, who should be doing it, but of course it is noticeable that when people do, as for example in Harvard, um, there was a, a charismatic teacher who put on a course on happiness, uh, which got a, a thousand students going to it yeah. in the first year mm-hmm. at, at Harvard. So there is a there is a huge demand. Um, I, I, I think there's no no standard solution to this, and certainly we're not talking about sort of building it. I don't think we should be talking about building it into university curriculum in the same way that we build it in the schools curriculum. It should be a matter of choice. I, I'm particularly. Uh, interested in promoting the ideas of this movement called Action for Happiness, of which I was a co-founder, um, which is is the, the basic idea that what is the purpose of our lives, which many students anguish over and think the answer is simple, the purpose of our lives is to create as much happiness in the world as we can, and as little misery, and working out what that means in terms of what we ourselves can contribute, who we are, what we can do for ourselves and for our own inner selves. And that that is a sort of basic uh, task of finding your way in life. And uh, this Action Happiness movement has developed a a wonderful course called Exploring What Matters, um, which is an eight uh, two-hour session course um, that can be taught by volunteers and the materials are all there. Um, And it, it really... I think for a young person who is trying to find their way, this is a very important form of grounding because to some extent, I suppose you would say, that in the past when people went to church and so on, they they got a, a, a version of the grounding in what, what they were meant to be doing and what kind of person they were meant to be. Right. And we, we haven't got an alternative to that uh, now, <clears throat> and, and I think we desperately need one. And uh, the Action Happiness Movement and the course called Exploring What Matters is an attempt to provide that for, obviously, uh, 
people to whom it makes sense. And I'm thinking that this could be a very valuable thing if we could get this widespread through our university system. Um, now, I, 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 the Exploring What Matters course, uh, which I, mm. I, I, I find very interesting. And I remember meeting with um, Mark Williamson yes, yeah. uh, when, you, when uh, he was developing this course. Yeah. Um, and, it w- you know, and one of the inspirations for it was, as a kind of, he said, it kind of, you know, they were originally going to call it the happiness course or the H course, because it was kind yeah, of yeah. like a secular version of the alpha course in some uh, ways, yeah. you know, talks and group discussions. But I was interested when I, when I looked at, at the Action for Happiness site that it's, it's changed somewhat, and it's not called a happiness course now. It's called Exploring What Matters. And, and I thought that was interesting because it sounds a bit more open. It's not just saying that happiness is what matters. Um, and, 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 and the kind of material on it says, um, the course welcomes people from all backgrounds and points of view there are no single right answers to these questions, and all constructive perspectives are, are welcome. But do you think? Do you agree with that, uh, Richard? Do you do you think that there are no single right answers? Because because no, you just you just no, said to me no, I think that, that I there think, is a simple think, answer. Well, I, I think that actually um, there are two senses of what matters. I mean, one one is what 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 is the basic philosophical concept of what matters, and I do think that there. Um, I believe very strongly that what matters is you know, the, the amount of happiness there is in the world and, and, and in particular the fact that there shouldn't be misery. Um, and the second issue, of course, is what matters to producing happiness. That's a separate, separate issue. And that, of course, does differ for yeah. different people. So in that sense, there's no right answer to that. People have to find right. what, what their own way to be happy. There are some general truths that, right. that, that help everybody, yes, but yes. everybody has to find their own particular version. Yes. Well, that's interesting. I mean, that, that implies that the course is really like find your own variety of utilitarianism. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can say that. Um, it's not because really some that. people might say that... It's not that. that. It's, it, find your own... Well, well, understand how you can contribute best to the happiness of others and to achieving happiness for yourself. Right. Uh, and and there, obviously, people's indiv- individual talents and, and, and individual characters mm. become very important. But what if there's someone on the course and they say, actually, uh, my happiness or other people's happiness is not the most important thing to me. To me, the most important thing is, uh, you know, a- a- achieving something great or um, worshipping Allah? Yes. Well, I, I would say, you know... Uh, uh, get out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> not get out, but very well continue the discussion. But it, it may not be that fruitful. Um, so, so it's more for secular people then, really? Well, I think worshipping Allah is, 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 is nearer to the point... Um, depending on what you meant by Allah, <laughs> but, but um, I mean, if if you um, discussing what Allah wanted, <laughs> um, uh, you might find that uh, you thought he would want people to be happy. Now here's the second interview with Will Davies, the author of the uh, Happiness Industry. Um, I interviewed Will through uh, Skype, so. Uh, 
the audio is not um, perfect, but um, we had a we had a great chat. Uh, it was very interesting to hear his um, criticisms of the uh, the well being uh, agenda. And I asked Will what could uh, be objectionable about um, governments uh, and companies trying to uh, improve our well being. And here's what he had to say. I suppose that there's always a, a choice where you're um, using policy and uh, expert social science to uh, try and influence people's um, emotions and their well-being. Um, and that choice is whether you focus on the context that they're, uh, they're in, whether that be their uh, work, um, their employment, their um, you know, the provision of public services uh, and so on, or whether you focus on um, uh, their own behaviour, their own um, relationship to themselves, their own uh, tricks of, 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 of reflection and um, uh, the way they interpret their own experiences. Mm. And I think that in many ways the first option is the more political one and in some ways the more idealistic one um, whereas the second is a, is a more um, I suppose a, a more feasible one and in many ways a, a cheaper and less less politically problematic one mm. in the sense that it, it, it doesn't involve seeking to actually alter uh, society or the economy but at the same time I think there is there's a risk um, that that's the, the becomes the primary route for the pursuit of um, human flourishing and well-being to mm. teach people how to behave differently and how to think differently. And I think if you want the the, the most um, troubling case of that, in my view, it's the way in which some positive thinking techniques have become integrated into active labour market policy, where um, as a way of trying to sort of push people uh, more actively back into the labour market when they've been unemployed for a long time, you you bring them into training sessions where uh, they're uh, required to recite certain um, positive thinking mantras and that kind of thing. And I don't doubt that those things are well-intentioned or that they potentially work quite well in certain circumstances. But I think that that's where it becomes rather ethically um, uh, problematic, in my view. But you've also looked um, at how com- uh, companies are, uh, are using a lot of these things too, trying to measure and influence the moods of consumers and of their workforce yeah. and so on. So that, you, you've, you, you've kind of, you've clocked something there that does seem to be growing. Yes. I mean, the history of this is, is, is quite long. I mean, the companies first started drawing on um, psychological research and hiring psychologists um, as early as the 1920s uh, with the, the birth of uh, behavioural psychology and um, the rise of um, attitudinal surveys to try and understand how customers felt about mm. brands and that sort of thing. Um, and then the development of HR under the influence of Elton Mayer in the 1930s, um, which was very much focused on how people felt about their work rather than about um, how um, physically productive they were in terms of tangible output. Um, mm. So this is, this is not new in the sense that um, there's businesses and managers have been trying to get a grip on emotions and um, uh, feelings for for some time. But I think that probably around the 1990s, with the development of of, of well-being as a a concept in economics and um, uh, areas of of medicine, um, I think that companies also spotted a a different uh, 
metric and a different tool of management, uh, both for um, trying to alleviate symptoms of stress amongst their employees, which, I mean, stress is a, is a very difficult issue for managers to, to get their hands around. It's often intangible, psychosomatic. Uh, it's not quite clear exactly what the cause or the symptoms are necessarily. And uh, focusing on the well-being of employees um, is um, in some ways a, a kind of preemptive measure to prevent um, stress, high staff turnover, or at the elite level, the, the, the concept of executive burnout, which is um, uh, in some ways the, the burnout is the term for stress for people who are highly paid, really. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I think that, that, that that's developed quite a lot in, in the workplace. But I think there's a politics to it here as well in the the, 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 the more... Um, the more valuable an employee is, uh, the more care they're treated with. Um, although that doesn't necessarily translate into, uh, I mean, that can still translate into, into some quite um, high-pressure type um, management practices. You think mm. of a kind of archetypal Google employee where they get all this wonderful free food and free massages and can bring their pet to work and so on. But at the same time, the, the, the expectation is that they that they almost don't have any reason to go home <laughs> given all of this. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, you have um, the practice in, in call centers, which is a, a very high turnover, um, uh, high stress, uh, low wage, uh, low skill type of workplace. There, the, there's, there's actually far less care about the, the well-being of the person and much more use of surveillance techniques to, to check whether people are, um, uh, you know, uh, are, are exuding the right behavioral signs of, right. of, of positivity, but, but perhaps you know, less concerned as to whether or not that's actually sincere at all. Yeah, it reminds me a bit of um, Quaker companies uh, in the 19th century who were kind of pioneers of well-being at work. And there was, I mean, there, there were different kinds of nuances in how they approached it. So there was um, round trees, for example, put quite a lot of effort into kind of providing things like libraries and orchestras the workers could join and supposedly their, their workers would, would sing all the time because um, yeah. they were in a good mood. And then there was uh, Fry's, which was another kind of Quaker chocolate company. Apparently they were all required to pray together every morning. And, 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 and one of the Fry family said this was a great opportunity to observe the workers and see who might be drunk or slovenly. Right. Yeah. So it was that kind of early uh, well-being, yeah. but actually it's really surveillance. That's right. I mean, there's, I mean, that's um, one of the great gurus of this in the work, in relation to work and productivity is Tony Shea, who's the founder of Zappos.com. Yeah. He has this um, whole new vision of a. I mean, it's quite similar to, I suppose, what what the likes of, of Cadbury were doing with with Bourneville and so on, of, of of trying to create an entire life for for the employees. He's, he's now building um, campuses uh, out in Nevada mm. uh, where employees are expected to spend their whole lives and, and, and really kind of want for nothing because they, they yeah. belong to the company in some ways. Yeah. Um, and, um, I mean, there is a rather um, disturbing line that I, I, I pulled out from Tony Shea's book and, and quoted it in my own. I mean, perhaps rather unfair to pull it out so much out of context, but when yeah. he says that, you know, if you introduce a happiness program into a, into a, um, into a workplace, there will be 10% of people who simply don't want it. And those are the ones you don't need, you know, as if yeah. this is a quite, as, as you say, quite a good way of, of, of separating the, the, the wheat from the chaff. Yeah. And it definitely, you know, I can't, I, I would hate to work somewhere like that. And I, I read, I read the comic book that he did about, about his book, Delivering Happiness. 
And it was such an ego trip, really. Right. I yeah. mean, there were pictures of all the workers looking really happy in front of a giant TV screen of Tony. Uh, right. And, and it, it, it did look, you know, uh, like, like, a, like a cult, yeah. uh, really. Uh, and, and, you know, those 10%, uh, the 10% kind of grumpy depressives, they're the people you really need, I think, in a company. But I say that, <laughs> well, as, I mean, I say that as a grumpy depressive, so... Yeah, I mean... I, I can I, I can see I can see the appeal for if you're a manager of not having uh, grumpy depressors around, but I suppose at the same time uh, there is a yes there's a there's a question about you know what whether whether you're going to end up with just sort of everybody you know there's a kind of you can have too much consensus in a workplace as well as too little and uh, yeah. so that's the problem and then in relation to marketing I mean I think it goes without saying that advertising and marketing have have almost since their inception in the late 19th century been concerned with trying to offer some vision of, 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 a, of, a, of a more prosperous, happier future yeah. via, via purchasing. So yeah. I mean, that almost goes without saying, but I think that the, um, there's a lot of interest in emotions uh, amongst, uh, I mean, obviously a lot of these people are snake oil salesmen, as people in the advertising yeah. industry probably have always been, but some people, um, but um, things like neuromarketing, which promise to identify specific emotional um, responses to different advertisements yeah. and brands and so on. So that, again, I think probably a serious neuroscientist would, 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 would laugh at a lot of that stuff because it, the, the types of claims that it's trying to make are, are quite far-fetched, as are right. um, the, those of the um, what's called affective computing industry. Um, yeah. These companies like Affectiva that do facial uh, analysis uh, using machine learning and uh, other types of body language analysis or sentiment analysis focused mm. on, uh, you know, the, sen- the language used on, a, on, a, on Twitter or email and so on. But, I mean, this is a, this is a, it's a huge growth industry now. The other, the other thing to say about that industry is that there's also a lot of capital being invested in um, uh, apps and, and devices that can um, detect depression. And uh, this is something that... Uh, you know the uses of which, uh, uh, you know, in some ways we haven't quite hasn't become quite clear. But I think that the wearable technology industry in, in Silicon Valley and around uh, spin-outs from MIT as well, uh, there's a huge amount of money being ploughed into uh, technological development um, focused on the monitoring of emotion, not only of, of, of positive emotion and and pleasure, but also of, of, of depression and distress. Yeah. Which I, which I guess you um, see as, you know, you, you, you think there's a risk of this being uh, su- surveillance and, and top-down controlling and sinister. But I suppose they, and to some extent I too, think actually this is empowering for the individual. So something like um, Moodscape, I think it's called, or might be Moodscope, which was one of these quantified self-apps. Yeah. To, to kind of monitor mood was actually developed by someone to monitor his own depression. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, that's somewhat what I feel about, uh, uh, you know, a lot of these initiatives that they I, I see them from 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 the kind of the bottom up as quite, you know, almost the same with CBT in a way that these, um, you know, that I mean, I, you know, I, 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 I like cognitive behavioral therapy because it helped me. But also because, I, I, you know, it was just stuff that I could learn and use myself. I didn't have to engage in, in you know, psychoanalysis for several years um, yeah. and, and, and really, you know, buy into the, 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 the rather gothic kind of theories of, of Freud or whoever. So sure. I, I, I found it kind of empowering for the individual. But 
I can see your point though that 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 it could potentially be something creepily used by by those in power. Um, I, yeah, I don't think I. I mean, I'm not. I, that's not necessarily what I'm. I'm arguing. I mean, I think, and I've I've, I've actually interviewed some of those um, app developers that you 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 were referring to, including the Boomscope mm-hmm. guy and mm-hmm. um, uh, some other similar um, apps. Some of which, as you say, are just developed by people. Uh, as an alternative to keeping a mood diary, and I mean, mood diaries have been around for a long time and are useful for people who are going to see their doctors talk about um, their uh, depression or anxiety and want to be able to at least bring some sort of something which is vaguely objective to discuss. Um, and uh, I, I'm not criticising that. Um, I think that there's a there's a broader uh, I suppose more cultural issue as much as anything else, which is that when we start to treat emotion, um, and uh, you'll know more about the history of how emotions have been conceived, but I mean, um, but I think that there's a there's a sense of things like the, the depression and um, mental health become uh, subsumed in, purely into physiology, into mm. notions of biology and brain science and so on. Um, that I think that that um, there's a risk that that that, that can be a, 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 a can eradicate the cultural and the political dimension of, mm. of mental health. Yeah. Um, and I think that um, uh, I suppose ultimately um, uh, I'm a sociologist is is my background, and I'm not suggesting that sociology has all the answers. And I yeah. also recognise that it would be difficult to suddenly come along and try and reground mental health policy. On, on purely political and institutional uh, bases, but on yeah. the other hand, there's a there's a middle ground between uh, some kind of Marxist Freudian perspective, which is the perspective that, that certain um, people in the anti psychiatry world have, have pushed, people in critical psychology like uh, David Snail and uh, Mark Rapley and people like that have, have, have argued that it's actually a combination of capitalist exploitation and and and, and conflict within the self that, that causes. Um, self-esteem to collapse and it's not something physiological but I think we've kind of gone to the to the opposite extreme so I suppose I would argue for a, for a, for a as, as, as many people in the policy world do as well but a, but a biopsychosocial perspective takes the social more seriously than I think is, is being done and one of the reasons for that is that the social dimension is, is, is currently being claimed by economists and um, the, uh, the, the economists uh, who have got some some useful survey data and analysis, mm. but I think that there's no idea of of you know look at the kind of issues that that seem to be at the heart of of the rise of Donald Trump and Brexit. So mm. it's people feeling that they have no say in how their lives are, are work. They don't you know this idea of loss of control. They to the vote leave campaign, and I think that um, that the the, the you know, I think there's an important contribution that can be made by a by a, by a cultural and political sociological perspective mm. on mental health that has scarcely any um, purchase over mainstream uh, thinking. Uh, I mean, there are still people in a Freudian tradition working in the NHS, and they're obviously mm. being gradually um, pushed to the margin to places like the Tavistock and elsewhere. And I actually think those people have huge amounts of insight and wisdom, um, which it would be very bad to lose. Yeah, I mean, we've we've talked. Uh, I remember a few years ago about um, you know the the power of of uh, small groups, whether that's things like um, you know self help groups or um, AA groups, or um, group discussions within company management, 
uh, and kind of, you know, mutual organisations and so on. So, I mean, that is one way that things like cognitive behavioural therapy can be less individualised and atomized, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and can be empowering also for local communities in terms of being places where they can kind of compare notes and compare life experiences. And I suppose there are also things in psychiatry like, say, the Hearing Voices Network, where, yeah. where actually these kind of groups also lead to shifts in power as well. So that yes. people who might just be the passive recipients of top-down kind of interventions become able to be, as it were, experts in their own health. Yeah. So, sure. I mean, that, that's one kind of middle ground, I suppose, between the social and the more like cognitive approaches. Sure. And I, I think the other thing which I, I, I in my book, um, uh, express some enthusiasm towards is the idea of social prescribing, which um, might be another thing that, that you and I can agree mm. on. I mean, mm. is the idea that, um, uh, which is now something that, that NHS doctors uh, can do, which is to suggest to people that they join a choir or um, go, um, you know, join a gardening club, and they actually can mm. write on the prescription Mm. Um, this is you know, as long as there's some kind of partnership between the GP's practice and the um, they're top and social local social enterprises which they partner with. Now, I think the reason I reason that appeals to me is I suppose that in some ways the 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 problem with depression, and I think that this is something that, that Freud's concept of melancholia actually helps us understand. We don't have to necessarily buy into it wholesale, but is is that it can manifest itself with an acute sense of of, of self. Uh, of self-blame and uh, in some ways an excess of responsibility. This is really how Freud understands melancholia. Uh, the term depression wasn't uh, really used uh, as it is today. Then. Um, mm. And so the, the, the challenge is partly to create a, a culture where people don't feel that everything is, is their fault and down to them. And actually the discovery that certain um, sort of sources of one's own distress and one's own unhappiness can, uh, are as much external to the self as internal mm, mm-hmm. can actually be quite liberating because although it doesn't necessarily mean that those 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 um, triggers of, of, of unhappiness um, are necessarily eradicated or alleviated at least uh, the relief of, of not feeling that one is entirely responsible for mm. one's own malaise I think that that's where finding roots out of a, of a wholly psychological notion of the self towards a a social notion of the self is mm. is an important form of, um, of of treatment, if you want to call it that, in its own right. Yeah. And that's where I think social prescribing is, is good. Mm. And I think actually, you know, I, I my book, which is quite sceptical towards a lot of contemporary notions of, of depression and happiness, um, I actually was quite warmly received by many sufferers of, of, of various mental health disorders, by people, activists working with um, in, in the mental health world. Because many people are quite find it quite exciting and quite liberating to to read, and I'm not saying I'm far from the first person to have written this. There's mm. lots of people who've done it uh, before me and better than me. But to to come across analyses which actually uh, say a lot of your troubles are, are, are political and cultural and institutional, and therefore mm. they're not solely yours to to deal with. And I'm not suggesting that's what CBT says, but mm. CBT does nevertheless. It offers. Uh, a set of tools that are quite um, sort of you know personal to the per- they're, they're quite they're, they're things that are that are within the, the power of someone who is in other ways quite powerless. And 
but I think that to say that there are there are, there are broader forces out here, mm. uh, of course, that can be uh, a reason to give up if you, yeah. if you if you want to do. But on the other hand, it could also be something quite there's, there's something quite appealing about the relief of of, of knowing that, that that maybe you can't change everything, you know, which I'm not yeah. supposed to use what CBT says either. But and, and people yes. can fall into a sense of oh my god, it's either entirely up to me or there's nothing that can be done. Whereas yeah. actually, there's 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 something between those two. Yeah, um, those those two extremes. And and also questioning whether it's all about happiness in the first place. Sure. Which which can be just assumed and can actually yeah. make life harder because yeah. we get obsessed yeah. with why we're not. I mean, the idea of measuring my daily mood, I think, would drive me bonkers. Sure. Um, yeah. yeah. And I know that this is where, I mean, people differ about how to construct affect scales and so on. And I think that there are people in the... Um, you know, even within the, 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 the positive psychology world, uh, and I've spoken to people within Action for Happiness, uh, Jeff Mulgan and others, and, and, and um, I've spoken to happiness economists like Daniel Kahneman and others, um, mm. and they disagree amongst themselves about whether they, you know, whether we're not constructing a scale. Should you have um, uh, happiness and unhappiness at, at opposite ends of the same scale, or maybe we should see these two things as as um, as, as, as different entities. Uh, and yeah. I think that, that, that uh, I mean, Kahneman obviously is a, uh, originally a psychologist, um, and I think he's rather suspicious of the, the uh, project of, of putting all emotions on a single a single scale. But I mm. suppose economists um, see it as attractive because it makes it easy to, 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 to do economic analysis, and it does fit with uh, the Benthamite underpinnings of uh, English neoclassical economics, which is that effectively there is a single um, scale of, of, of positive and negative emotion. But I think that um, I think that, that some of the, the controversies within that that sphere are quite healthy and should probably be brought to the surface more because Definitely. I think that there are dissenting voices within that world, and I think that um, I, I think that sometimes things like actual happiness have tried to present a, a very kind of unified front about. Partly because it's run as a bit of a business, as far as I can see, and uh, mm. uh, I think that, um, that, that that things are complicated, and I don't think anyone yeah. is doing anyone else any favours by suggesting that they're not. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that. So, just to, to take us a, a kind of a, 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 a brief step back, um, we, we we see so much of a focus now on on emotion in different fields, like in 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 the humanities. We're both involved in, in, in what they call, you know, the effective turn, as in looking at more uh, emotion kind of led approaches in history or sociology or literary studies and so on. We're seeing, um, you know, people talk about the politics of emotion more and more, uh, of which the politics of well-being is one aspect, but there's also the politics of anger and of, you know, disgust or xenophobia and so on. Um, I mean, do you think that we're becoming a bit um, emotion obsessed and that this is, you know, partly because of the decline of um, others, you know, ways of, of, of thinking about life like um, religion or ideology? And, and in the decline of religion and ideology, we just have kind of emotions, uh, uh, you know, as, as, as a goal. Yes, I suppose that's right. I mean, I think um, there's a lot of interest in emotion right now, given um, the the anger that Donald Trump seems to have channeled, um, and the sense of 
alienation that Brexit seems to have channeled. Um, and uh, I suppose there's also that sense that there's this image of these emotionless technocrats who have had all the power for, for the last 40 years or so, mm. um, and that all of these emotions have been kind of brewing away in the background and now kind of burst into the surface like, like oil out of an uh, oil well. And um, I, I, I suppose there, there, there has been, um, uh, the, you know, there is a question where else to, might, might, might those feelings go? I mean, I suppose they, they, they go into, I mean, the, I think capitalism has been a, a space of, I mean, for, in, in the in countries like Britain, if you go to Westfield Shopping Centre, um, the space is flooded with um, uh, emotional offers and uh, declarations in the form mm. of all of the photographs and the brands and so on. Mm. I mean, shopping is, 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 has long been a very uh, uh, emotional uh, experience, somewhere, maybe not the experience of shopping itself, but I mean, yeah. you know, every time you select something, you're, 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 you're being offered a, a, a whole kind of lifestyle with it and so on. So right. um, I think that... Uh, not to mention I mean, the kind of the, the, the drugs economy in all its... Right. In, you know, from booze to um valium to you know I mean, that yeah. whole economy that's that's grown up really since the uh well o- over the 20th century and sure. and longer yeah. of course yeah yeah plus there's also i think one of the most significant cultural um formations of the last 20 years has been the rise of talent shows and, and reality television where mm. the main currency on those shows is emotion i mean the, yeah uh, i mean obviously x factor has a winner but i think yeah each week there's also someone who's in tears because they're, they're being kicked out and the same thing with you know Big Brother which was the some ways one of the, the, the kind of pioneer of this kind of television the, the moment where somebody bursts tears is, is, is kind of what the you know it seems to get the ratings in yeah. so in some ways we live in a very emotion obsessed culture mm. um, but we also kind of we sort of turn other people's emotions into spectacles mm. um, I mean, Donald Trump was magnetic because he's sort of Seems so. Is is magnetic, but in his campaign was was magnetic because he he just seemed so sort of mad and so mm. enraged the whole time. Yeah. Um, and there's something which is very um, we you kind of can't take your eyes off that that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and I suppose it is a bit like a um, a charismatic preacher in some respects who uh, uh, channels some. Um, uh, questions of existential questions of, of life and death into their mm. body language, into their tone of voice, and creates a, a, a sense of congregation amongst the audience uh, that they are in the presence of, of something metaphysical. Um, and I think that um, that's what uh, celebrities do to some extent in contemporary culture. And I suppose that that is partly a, 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 about the, 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 the fact that secularism doesn't provide it in other other places. I think that I mean, you know, Jeremy Corbyn supporters probably experienced something. The odd thing about Corbyn is that he's he's so lacking in charisma. Um, but I think that uh, in some in some ways that has its own emotional resonance because it, it kind of makes you feel that that, that that this is something very that, that is for all of us in some way that doesn't have it doesn't have elites or hierarchies. Uh, fi- finally, I, I'm I'm interested in. Um in uh, academics' attitude to uh, to well-being uh, yeah. and, and well-being initiatives. I suppose, um, I mean, I feel, I, I feel, w- when I tend to explore these ideas of, of well-being or the politics of well-being in, in 
in the humanities, in, in academia. I, I tend to come across um, people who are wary of it and suspicious of it, and, and people want to kind of problematise well-being or, or, or subject, you know, different contemporary ideas of well-being to critical inquiry in, in, in order to kind of um, uncover the, the agendas beneath it. And it's often attached to neoliberalism. And, and so the, the kind of default position I feel in, in, in academia is, is uh, in humanities particularly, is, is wariness. And I think you're, uh, you know, more, one of the more eloquent um, expressions of, of, of that kind of wariness. But I, um, I guess my, my, my concern is that sometimes the kind of, the, the suspicion and the wariness uh, doesn't recognise the good stuff in, in this movement, which is particularly... Um, you know, taking mental health more seriously when it wasn't taken that seriously in, 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 in public policy 20 years ago and making talking therapies more available. Um, and I also wonder if, it, does academia have, uh, you know, humanities academia, does it have a negative bias? If you look at kind of what people research, it, it, you know, I don't, I've never met academics really working on the history of joy <laughs> or... Uh, or of yeah. uh, you know, um, it, it's uh, but I've met plenty working on melancholy and 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 uh, and variants thereof. So I wonder if there's some kind of um, negative emotion bias in the humanities. But but yeah, well, go on. The first thing to say is when you talk about academia, I mean, there's all sorts of different. You know, academia covers all sorts of things, and mm. I think the um, the 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 turn towards um, uh, a more uh, a positivist uh, approach to uh, to to happiness and and uh, well being is is also driven by academics. So this isn't really about academia. This is about particular uh, disciplines. Mm. Um, I, I would also not quite sure that it's the humanities. I think possibly what you're referring to is people in social sociology, cultural theory, cultural studies. Mm. Um, I mean, cultural studies is kind of it's a borderline of humanities and and social science. Um, so uh, I, I I hear what you're referring to, and I think that. Um, there is a uh, well. Clearly, those who come out of a Marxist background um, believe that uh, uh, exploitation is a structural and historical phenomenon, and that uh, anything which tries to uh, focus on uh, tries to do anything else is a is a is a sort of bourgeois ideology. So that's right. I mean that that's been the case. But I mean that that that, that goes the whole way back to the. To the to the uh, early days of, of Marxism, I mean that was what you know. All, all John Locke was, was 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 perceived in the same way by Marxists. So um, there's, there's nothing specifically new about that. Right. I think that is there a negativity bias? Well, certainly within some traditions of critical theory. I mean the the Frankfurt School, who have been very influential over 20th century social theory and and, and cultural theory, mm -hmm. um, had a had an absolutely clear negativity bias. They were made no bones about it. Someone like Adorno mm -hmm. uh, believed that you know that being happy was a was a, um, um, a, a sort of you know, meant kind of giving up in some way. That, right. You know, so unhappiness is. Is is a is a is, the, is a glimpse of freedom. Um, through unhappiness, you um, are, uh, try and engage honestly with with the uh, injustices and the fundamental uh, conflicts that are at stake in the world, both in a, in a Freudian sense but also in a Marxist sense. So, right. I, I mean, I completely hear what you're saying, and I was personally very. Um, uh, I, I went down the Adorno rabbit hole as a as a young man, and uh, it probably shaped some of my thinking. So mm. there, there may be something in that. I think 
um, in terms of do sociologists and social theorists try and focus on suffering and and oppression rather than on joy and and flourishing? Um, yeah, there's probably something in that. Um, mm. In that, uh, I suppose in some ways there, um, you know, there's a kind of seesaw um, with um, a lot of uh, cognitivists and economists and uh, behaviorists uh, all uh, heavily funded. Um, highly influential sitting happily on one end of the seesaw and then there's a much smaller collection of sociologists, uh, Marxists, um, uh, cultural studies uh, scholars and so on down the other end and they're sort of jumping extra hard to try and kind of you know rebalance things a little bit. Right. Um, now I'm not suggesting that, that that's necessarily you know you might just be shouting into the ether it may not have any uh, it, it may be a, a kind of uh, a disciplinary conceit in some ways but at the same time I think that uh, I mean, there, there are, you know, there are other areas of, if you look at, say, urban geography, and it's quite clear. I mean, I think that, I mean, sociologists have, have, have done very important work over, over the last 120 years showing that actually a lot of suffering is, is caused by, um, by, by conditions and, uh, uh, and that these are conditions that potentially could be alleviated. Mm. Um, I'm just reading Ali Russell Hochschild's new book, um, Strangers in Their Own Land, about um, conservatives in Louisiana. And it's, you know, people living extremely hard lives. Um, mm. And, uh, but, but, but there's a sort of, but have also uh, completely given up on any type of collective um, solution to, to, to their, to their own distress. Mm. And I think that part of the vocation of sociology is to try and counter that and to say, actually, there are things that you could do if, if you were prepared to, uh, try and reach consensus about the nature of the, the problems and, and, and the possible political solutions. So, I mean, you know, I think that I, I can see that it's aggravating to, to you if you think that there's a lot of kind of miserable lefty cultural sociologists all uh -huh. saying that people should be left to revel in their own suffering, which <laughs> I, I, don't, I think that I don't think, I, I mean, I wouldn't agree with quite well, that. Well, I suppose, you know, um, uh, no, I, 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 I hear what you're saying very much, and I suppose from the perspective of um, uh, critics, it must feel like all the power and the money is on one side of the, of the debate, in fact, and, 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 and kind of these rather simplistic solutions get a lot of money thrown at them. I suppose yeah. I, I kind of feel more that this is um, things like uh, NH the NHS's you know, talk, talking therapy service is still quite young and it's still quite a new thing in public policy, yeah. and um, and therefore it's it's kind of fragile. And I guess it, you know, I, I I'm just um, even though I can see its flaws, I kind of mm -hmm. I feel why it's is progress. it? Yeah, it's progress. And why is it? Why is it? Um, and it needs to be kind of defended. So I'm I'm you know like you know like followers of Corbyn, you know they talk about defend Jeremy. So I'm a bit like defend Iapt. But I don't uh, think I mean the people who've criticised Iapt are not really academics it's not I mean there might be one or two academics who've, who've had a had a jab at it but uh, yeah. I mean I, I, I don't um, I don't think I've ever criticized IAPT um, I mean I, I might criticize uh, a mechanistic view of, of, of talking therapy that you know by spending a hundred million pounds on it you're going to get 120 million pounds of return on investment which of course is what Richard Layard kind of had to make that argument in order mm. to convince the Treasury but I also think it's it's an argument that Fundamentally misrepresents the yeah. nature of therapy and of and of human experience. Right. Um, 
I don't think academics have really gone for IAPT. I think the people who've gone for IAPT are more the people in clinical psychology and uh, people working in Freudian traditions yes. um, uh, of, 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 of talking cures themselves, although they don't probably call it talking cures. But, I mean, you know the sorts of people, you know, um, again, people around the Tavistock, uh, people, yeah. um, you know, I think even Oliver James, who's mainly focus on promoting Oliver James uh, but you know he's he's had a go at it yeah um, I don't know if Richard Bentall ever has but I mean there's you know it's, it's 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 the rivals within the profession yeah people who you know understandably to become a, a, a therapist in, in in the psychodynamic tradition takes about five years and you have to do um, uh, something like 300 trainee client hours before mm. you're allowed to actually work as a as a as a therapist mm. um and these people, they see uh, this apparent solution to all our ills being rolled out mm. with people who can be trained within three months or even don't require human therapists at all. I mean, there are mm. software packages that can, yeah. uh, do this. Um, so you can understand. I mean, imagine if, if, if architecture profession, suddenly um, the government came along and said, actually, we can have this other thing, which is like architecture, but doesn't involve any vision of the built environment, any notion of the nature of, of, of uh, you know any aesthetic concern and the fact it's yeah. mainly just focused on uh, yeah. risk analysis and satisfying clients I mean I you know can, there'd be an yeah. absolute outcry so that's kind of what's happening. Totally and I suppose you know I mean in some ways Richard Lau was was very effective at getting this policy introduced but there was not exactly well I want I, it seemed to me there was not a kind of general industry consultation but but um but in fact I mean he he, he disagreed when I when I when I put that to him but um, well, well, there are there are now short term psychodynamic therapies in IAPT, so it's not just anymore right. just CBT. But um, but yeah, I suppose there's there, there's a kind of just a there is a there is an entrenched dislike of CBT uh, in other talking therapies, which is yeah. understandable, I guess. I mean, I went to hear Adam Phillips talk at the British Library a year ago, and someone was trying to goad him into criticising CBT, and he actually wouldn't take the bait, which I thought was quite noble of him, because right. it's an obvious thing to try and, um, uh, uh, try and get him to do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He had rather a nice line where he said, uh, at least people who are interested in quick fixes understand that we don't have much time, which was sort of just <laughs> this kind of, you know, throwaway Freudian, um, you know, it's like, well, you know, if this is what you want to do, then, then by all means do it. But, yeah. um, you know, each each of these different methods has its own kind of um, merits and its own um, naiveties and, and flaws. And, of course, there are also plenty of people out there who've spent 20 years and tens of thousands of pounds on visiting analysts mm. three times a week um, and are just kind of utterly wrapped up in themselves. So, I mean, mm. there's no, you know, I'm, it's, these, I don't particularly have a yeah. dog in this fight, but yeah, I, do, got you. I am a bit concerned where... Um, Big money and um, uh, an impoverished vision of, of, of the human self um, dominates over over other voices. So there's Will. He's the author of The Happiness Industry: How Governments and Big Business Soulless Wellbeing. Um, before that, it was Richard Layard, who uh, is the author of books uh, including Happiness: Notes Towards a New Science, and more recently, he wrote a book called Thrive, looking at uh, why governments should support, uh, you know, the expansion of talking therapies. Um, so that's it. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, and do subscribe uh, to the podcast because we're going to have uh, lots more interesting talks and interviews um, throughout 2017.